Cognition with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the RoboHub podcast. Today we will be hearing about cognitive robotics, a field at the intersection of adaptive robotics and artificial intelligence. Cognitive robots deal with the inherent uncertainty of natural environments by continually learning, reasoning and sharing their knowledge. Cognitive robots can be talked to like humans. They can work with a team on a task. They can recover from failures without assistance or collaborate with humans to recover from a failure when it's required. Our interviewer Lily met up with Marlise Reeves, a PhD student in the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab at MIT. They discussed the role of robotics in space, the challenges of planning missions in natural environments where there is inherent uncertainty, and her work on an underwater exploration project. Hi, welcome to RoboHub Podcast. Hi. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Marlies Reeves, and I'm a second-year PhD student at MIT studying robotics. And um, can you talk a little bit about how you got into robotics? Sure. Um, I got my start in robotics pretty early on. I grew up in um, Los Angeles, California, really close to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where they do all of the Mars rovers, um, and planetary rovers in general. Um, and I had gone to a lot of open houses when I was a kid. I thought it was super cool. Um, and then when I was in high school, I started an all-girls robotics team through the first organization um, at my high school. And so that's kind of how I got into kind of actually learning how to do things about robotics. And then um, I did aerospace engineering when I was in my undergrad because um, I still really like space, really like aerospace. And now I'm kind of back in computer science, focused on general robotics with the hope to one day take it back to something aerospace related. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is the, um, the importance of the intersection of aerospace and robotics? So um, if you think about everything that we've sent into space so far, a lot of it and most of it has been either manually scripted or manually um, controlled. Like the rovers on Mars right now are controlled by humans. Um, And that works fine for places like Mars, where we have um, only a seven-minute delay. Um, and so we can see very quickly, reasonably quickly, when things are going wrong or, like, where we've gotten to based on some command we've given the robot. But if we want to send robots to explore the surface of other types of planets like Europa, our planetary moons, like Europa, um, where the time delay is, like, upwards of over an hour, it's just going to be really infeasible to do that without some sort of autonomy built in uh, to those vehicles. And so for NASA to progress, for us to push further into the solar system and into our exploration, we're going to have need to have more sophisticated autonomy on board these vehicles. Um, in general, like the autonomy in aerospace systems now is like probably the least sophisticated of any autonomy that's in the world, like manufacturing robotics, self-driving cars, all of that, all of that is way more sophisticated. And the reason for that is just that aerospace systems are really expensive and they're really risky. You have kind of one shot. Um, you could spend 10 years building a rover and you want to make sure that it works. So generally people in the industry have been really 
risk averse in terms of letting an autonomous system take over. Um, whereas, you know, one manufacturing robotic arm in a factory, if it breaks, it's not the end of the world. But if you spent 10 years building a rover that breaks because of some autonomy issue, that's way harder to explain. Um, and so basically kind of the, the goal for researchers in robotics is to show that these autonomous systems can be really robust, can be really capable about being safe um, so that we can start putting them into our, our aerospace systems and like pushing further out into the solar system. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about um, personally what your research is doing towards improving autonomy? Sure. So um, I work in a cognitive robotics lab. This means that we are kind of at the intersection of AI and robotics. Robotics, um, research generally, how the field has been defined is more about um, how to make uh, machines that can move really gracefully in their environment, um, gracefully like humans, underwater, whatever it may be, um, to perform some tasks. Um, whereas AI is focused on making computers that um, can be really intelligent and reason about their inputs. Um, we kind of seek to combine these two things. We'd like to make machines that can both move gracefully through the world, but also um, can reason about the world as they're moving through it. Um, most particularly, one of the projects we're working on related to kind of the aerospace stuff is um, this underwater robotic mission. So NASA, as I mentioned, is interested in going to these icy moons where they have underwater oceans, or they think they have under ice oceans, I should say. Um, and you, they're going to need some capability to do robust autonomy between multiple vehicles in an untended environment where we kind of don't know very much about the environment going in. And so we have a lot of those types of environments here on Earth i.e. our oceans, which haven't been super well explored, kind of an unknown environment, very hazardous currents, other ships, like there's a lot of kind of things that it's a very dynamic environment. And so um, we have been funded by NASA to do kind of like a analog mission to Europa, mm -hmm. um, but instead doing an underwater volcano. Mm -hmm. And so we are building kind of an autonomy system to be able to take care of like from start to finish, automating that entire process of doing one of these explorations. So not only like planning the, the, the high level mission, what kind of science sites do you want to visit? Um, how long do you want to spend in them? How long is it going to take to move between these regions? What sort of resources do you need? Um, and then day to day, kind of how do you, you know, actually plan trajectories for these vehicles? If you have multiple vehicles, how do you make sure um, that they're interacting properly? Maybe there's some communication distance constraints or um, they have to avoid obstacles. Um, communication is pretty limited um, underwater. So we have all these different constraints and things that we need to take into account. And we have a multi-vehicle scenario. Um, and the computational resources on an individual vehicle is pretty low. So we want to be able to kind of do all this quickly and efficiently. Um, so that's kind of the overall project that we're aiming for. Um, and the goal really is to help uh, marine scientists to be able to, who, who are using these vehicles to collect real science, to, to, to do real science. And we want to make it much easier for them to, to do these types of missions. And in the process, demonstrate that if you had a robust autonomy architecture on um, vehicles that were going to say Europa, it would be easy to do science. I have a couple follow-up questions. All right. <laughs> um, so, so you mentioned that kind of at the highest level, you have to say what sorts of spots are interesting mm -hmm, from a science mm -hmm. perspective. Is that kind of a human in the loop sort of thing or is, is even that aspect of it automated? Yeah. So a little bit of both. We're trying, there's, there's specific people in my lab working on what's called adaptive sampling, which is exactly that, is um, taking some prior distribution of knowledge for some sort of scientific property 
um, over a region? How do we decide where to go that will be most informative? So that could be answering questions like, um, you know, I'm trying to find the deepest point um, in this area. Given that I know what I'm seeing right now, where should I go next? Mm -hmm. Um, And so using kind of intuition from scientists, we can kind of build an understanding of like what the world should look like. And then we can automate it, automate the process of deciding where to go next. Um, And if you experience what it's like to be on one of these vessels planning with, with scientists, they really are just kind of like choosing based on their knowledge and intuition. And so it's not like a formulaic thing. And we want to try to emulate that kind of knowledge and intuition that a scientist Mm. has. Um, so that's one of the one of the aspects of what we do. Yeah. And you mentioned that the, the computational capabilities of each of the robots is somewhat limited. Mm-hmm. Um, is a lot of what you're is a lot of the autonomy happening on board for each of these? Or is there some sort of centralized mm-hmm. thing that does the high level planning and then communicates goals? Great question. Um, both. So one of the interesting aspects of this project is kind of how do you design an architecture to, to kind of capture all these things. So there is a lot of planning that you can do off board your, your vehicle. Like um, we want to just plan what the day is going to look like in general. We want to plan what multiple days ahead are going to look like, given that we have all these resources on the ship, given that the ship has certain, you know, shipley activities that it has to do. That's all stuff that can be done offline or, or off board a specific vehicle. Um, and you can even do like kind of high level trajectory planning off offline and just kind of like send commands down. But then when you're trying to get, vehicles to adapt and react in real time um, as they're moving through their environment, that requires that you have some sort of onboard capability. Um, And then there's kind of another question is how do you get that onboard capability to, you know, interact with your offboard centralized capability? And you also mentioned that you have multiple vehicles Mm -hmm. and just sort of broadly, what sorts of challenges do you deal with when you have multiple vehicles in this complex planning? Sure. So, you can think about all the different, I'll, I'll explain kind of some of the different types of vehicles we have. First, we have like the ship itself. Um, it's carrying all these vehicles. It's carrying the crew. Um, it moves in a very different way than something that's going under the water and, and gliding about. Um, and additionally, like it has to be the central like hub for all of the other vehicles. And so it has its own very unique kind of dynamics and constraints. And then you have vehicles like gliders, which are pretty capable of moving through the water. Um, you can imagine like a torpedo you would like throw through a pool, kind of moving similarly to that. Um, so they're pretty graceful and can avoid obstacles pretty well. Um, but even so, they're still pretty susceptible to like if you have currents or something like that. And they need to be able to like take into account the fact that there might be currents and they have to overcome them and, and things. They might get blown off course. Um, so you have to take that into account. And then just between those two types of vehicles, um, there's certain communication limits, uh, limits um, i.e. The, the glider has to surface to communicate with a satellite to get GPS location. When it's underwater, it can only communicate via acoustic modem. An acoustic modem has limited range. And so taking into account those communication constraints between the vehicles is also really important. And then you have a whole other host of vehicles. There's... Um, one vehicle called a Lagrangian float that only moves up and down and kind of travels with the current. So in that kind of deal, you can't predict exactly where it's going to be. You can only command up and down. And so how do you factor that in? Um, probably the ship is going to go have to pick it up and it won't be able to do its own maneuvering to come back. 
Um, there's surface vehicles that kind of extend the communication range. They kind of act as like relays for the ship. Um, so how do you plan for those types of vehicles? There's other, um, there's another vehicle called an ROV, which um, has manipulator arms on it and is doing like more manipulation tasks underwater, taking samples of, you know, the marine environment. And that is tethered to the ship, for example. So it has a limited distance range um, and it's like less mobile than the gliders. So you can just see from things I've been saying, there's like a lot of different the constraints you can factor in. And so, um, of course, we handle a lot of things separately and independently, but some of them have to be coupled. And so that's why it becomes a pretty challenging problem. Do the different, um, the glider and the floater, and the, do they all communicate with each other or does everyone communicate with the ship? Great question. That's also totally, usually they're all communicating with the ship. Um, I think this also just kind of goes back to the fact that like acoustic range is limited um, and the, the individual vehicles don't have a lot of computational powers on the, on board. Um, but that is also a challenge is like, since you have to centrally control all of them to make sure they're not going to run into each other or all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so mostly they're communicating with the ship or if you had some sort of surface vessel that was acting as a communication relay, but kind of extending that range right. Um, then you can kind of have like a relay of vehicles that are like chained to form kind of a communication thing. And then you have to plan all of their motions based on the fact that you have these ranges. Yeah. What sort of um, sensors or instruments do you have on board? And do you have a sense of how closely they will be, like how similar they will be to what would actually be on a NASA mission to Mm. say an icy moon? Um, That's a good question. So, um, probably reasonably similar to a national mission. If you are exploring an underwater environment, the gliders have um, uh, the ability to sample the water column. So they have the ability to take water samples. Um, They have like temperature sensor, pressure sensor, I believe. And I usually have um, mass spectrometers, which is doing like some basic chemical analysis on board. Um, And then I mentioned the ROVs kind of have more manipulator type tasks. They have Mm -hmm. these little kind of vehicles that they go and like take samples and have like a little tray of samples that they have. It's very similar to like what a Marge Rover would do, for example. Um, And so- Are they sampling like flora and fauna or what is it that they're- Generally, I believe it's like rocks and soil. So we're working around, um, a lot of people we work with are geologists and volcanologists and they're trying to understand what the geology is like, when we're going to get our next (laughs) subversion. I don't know anything about that much about geology at all, but um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it could be any number of things. Um, It could also be marine samples like, you know, dead coral, whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, that kind of stuff. Hmm. Yeah. So it it could very well be very similar types of uh, types of vehicles. And I guess the the point there is that you will probably need multiple different types of vehicles to kind of create this, a robust mission. And so you do have to take these things into account. So what sort of problems do you personally work on day to day? Mm. So my research focus on focuses on um, hybrid activity and motion planning. So I mentioned that when you're doing kind of a robotic mission, you want to plan kind of high level what the tasks are, um, what the goals are. Um, given that I have some like end goal, I need to have these samples or whatever, what are the tasks I need to do at a high level to reach that goal? Um, A task could be like, I need to go pick up this thing. I need to make sure that I um, compute this thing. I need to make sure that I go to this location, kind of high level things. And then you have motion planning, which is 
basically like, given that I have a, a, a low level goal, how can I actually plan my trajectories to get there? You know, position velocity accelerations to, to get there, be it a, you know, mobile Rover, a glider, a manipulator arm, that's kind of motion planning. But if you think about the types of problems um, we're trying to solve, um, how you plan your activities is really dependent on, um, for mobile vehicles, what your emotions are like. For example, you can't plan a mission that takes 10 minutes if your glider moves very slowly or something like that. Um, and so you need to be able to factor in some level of dynamics and some level of motion planning while you're doing the activity planning. And then also when you're doing executing your motion plan, you need to be able to take into account the fact that I'm not just going to the next goal. I'm going to the next goal because I'm trying to satisfy a larger set of activities. And so how can I take into account the larger set of activities and make sure that what I'm doing right now in the next few seconds, the next few minutes is going to be not only helpful for the next goal I'm going to achieve, but helpful for all my goals that I'm going to achieve in the future. Um, and so kind of programming in some knowledge and intelligence about um, reasoning about kind of things in the long term, um, reasoning about activities in the long term when you're executing your motions. And then also kind of doing a combination of those things, um, kind of making it a continuous planning loop. I'm executing my motions. I encounter something I never expected. Um, this has changed my ability to complete my plan. How can I fail gracefully enough that I can go back to the high level planner and say, I failed because of this reason. And then you can kind of generate a new plan from there. And so it's kind of closing the loop on that as well as making sure that the two pieces are interconnected so that you can really do robust planning. In these sorts of environments, what are some of the strategies that you or other roboticists use to handle that kind of that level of uncertainty. Mm. So, I mean, there's a whole field that we handle in our lab called risk-bounded motion, risk-bounded planning in general. And you can handle risk at all different types of levels. For example, you can just have temporal risk. Like, what is the probability that I'm going to miss this deadline mm-hmm. based on, like, my dynamics or, or whatever, um, based on how much I've missed the deadline in the past, whatever that kind of thing is, uh, how, how many times I've missed deadlines in the past. Um, you can have, like risk when it comes to your emotions. Like how likely is it given that I have some uncertainty? Um, Usually we have some sort of way we model uncertainty in the vehicle, you know, um, probability distribution of if I take this action, what's the, you know, probability that I could be in any one of these kind of locations. You kind of have like a region where I could possibly be. And I want to make sure that that region doesn't collide with any obstacles. And so you can kind of factor that into the planning by saying, I have to make sure that I don't collide with other people or other vehicles or, or obstacles um, given that I have some uncertainty and that that uncertainty is growing over time. Um, so that, that's another thing that we do. Another thing that we do is doing kind of like online planning where you, instead of just planning a directory and then saying, go execute it. And I'm going to assume my uncertainty is, you know, going to grow as time goes on. And hopefully I've generated a risk or a plan that's good enough. Um, but you can kind of replan as you go on and, and um, ingest state estimates from your vehicle as it's executing um, to be able to, um, your vehicle will report at some point, I know that I'm in this location and that may change the plan for the future. And you can then kind of recap compute given all the, the new levels of risk or whatever. Um, so those are like a couple things that we do to, to manage that. And um, um, we also allow like high level activity planners to have a lot of choice. So maybe um, the user can program in some like preferences about what activities or goals are most important. And the high level activity planner can say, 
like, well, given that we're executing and we're probably not going to meet the deadline for the full plan, based on your preferences, I'm going to drop this action. Mm -hmm. And like, that's fine because you said like it wasn't a hard thing we had to do. I'm going to prioritize the things that were hard. Um, And so that's a whole other kind of um, negotiation with the user almost to say like, what, what would you rather us have? Would you rather complete it on time or would you rather us like get all of the, all the things we want to do? So that's kind of an uncertainty in that like, we don't know how we're going to execute, but we can have some sort of preference model for, Mm -hmm. for how we adapt as we want. Are the plans usually day by day? Mm. Um, so our like vision is that we want to be able to plan at like multiple levels of fidelity as we go on. So we would love to be able to plan like, here's what the, I'm going back to the underwater case. Here's what the ship is doing for a week. Mm-hmm. High level. It's going to be, you know, very rough trajectories. Maybe won't even have the other vehicles involved. Just like at a high level, we want to spend this much time and each of these locations over a week. You go down to a single day. Now I have to say I have this amount of crew. I have this amount of daylight hours. I have to get these things done. How do I create a schedule for what to do during that day? Um, that maybe doesn't involve any trajectories or anything. It's just let's make an activity schedule. And then you can say zooming in on one of those activities. Maybe that activity involves multiple vehicles going down and doing motion plans. And that's just for a couple hours. And so let's plan motions and trajectories for a couple hours. And now you're on board the vehicle and you're saying, I just need to plan my motion to get the next point in the next few minutes. And so you can kind of like see how this forms kind of a hierarchy yeah. of autonomy that also has to be closed loop. And so I think one of the really unique things that we do in our lab is thinking about this kind of architecture that really to do robust autonomy, you have to have this sort of architecture. It's not just one algorithm, one planner that's solving this entire problem. It's, you have this hierarchy of planners and they're all communicating with each other and they all have different capabilities. Um, and so how do you kind of connect them in a way that is more than the sum of some of their parts and gives you mm-hmm. kind of like, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what would you guess is like a, a reasonable timeline for when we'd be able to do that sort of fully integrated hierarchical planning mm. in what sort of system? I would say that like in a thing like self-driving car, they're doing very similar type things. Maybe they don't have the highest level. Yeah, multiple agents. But I mean, if you think about what a self-driving car is doing, it's, it's planning an overall trajectory for how the car is getting to its final destination, similar Mm -hmm. to whatever Google maps does. Right. And then at a low level, it's planning what are the actual sensor inputs that I need to make it go to the next just intermediate point. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's doing some level most, integrated autonomy systems have some level of hierarchy. It's just how far do you go in the abstraction? Um, and the farther you go up in the abstraction, it's kind of means like the less the human has to do. Yeah. If the human is just able to say, I have these high level goals, go, that's great. And that takes away a lot of one human error and also like a lot of like time away from yeah. a human to focus on other things. Um, if you can just give your autonomy architecture some high level goals you want it to complete and it's going to do all of those levels for you. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much all the time we have. <laughs> do you have any um, advice or resources for people who are interested in learning more about this field? Um, every year there is a cognitive robotics summer school. Um, 
last year, my lab was the one who put this on. The previous two years is my lab that put it on. Um, you can find our videos from those years on YouTube if you search MERS Cognitive Robotics. Um, MERS? MERS, M-E-R-S, Cognitive Robotics on YouTube. You can see videos from, you know, experts in the field of cognitive robotics giving lectures on that kind of stuff. And then there's also going to be another summer school at USC this year if you're interested in cognitive robotics. Um, yeah, and those are kind of like the big... Like, it's kind of like an interesting field because you are intersecting yeah. AI and robotics. And um, it's fun. It's like a lot of cool stuff. Cool. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks. And that's it from us for today. Join us again for our next episode. But if you can't wait that long, there's plenty more to discover at robohub.org forward slash podcast. And if you have any feedback or questions, suggestions for an interview topic or interviewee, or if you'd maybe like to get involved in the podcast, let us know by emailing our president, Audro, at audro.nash at robohub.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Cognition with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.